0: Public Intellectual is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. You can find my show and more original work at foreverdogpodcasts.com. And Public Intellectual now has a Patreon. If you've been enjoying these weekly episodes, you can consider donating at patreon.com/slash public intellectual. You give us money and we'll give you some stuff. That stuff, inevitably, includes a tote bag but we're working on other ideas and if you have a certain desire let us know your desires and we will we'll try to work them out so again patreon.com slash public intellectual I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Burnt, this Bradley Cooper as a genius chef movie, but I recommend it because it is really just one of the worst things I have ever seen. Bradley Cooper is a genius, so he's temperamental, he throws things, and is verbally abusive to everyone around him, but it's okay, because he's a genius. It's really just so in line with a certain archetype of the male creator The man who is allowed to be abusive, to rape women, to be monsters to everyone around them. Yet his aura remains somehow unblemished. And actually, often, your aura is enhanced by all of this violence and abuse. And obviously there are other ways to be a male genius. There are other archetypes. But how many male artists, writers, filmmakers, and so on can we immediately think of who live out this archetype? Not only live it out, but strive for it. And anyway, burnt is like the purest distillation of this archetype. The woman he physically assaults in the beginning ends up as his love interest by the end, and so on. There are no real women genius archetypes. We have women geniuses, but Coco Chanel does not become an archetype in the way, let's say, Hemingway does. Which is a shame, because the spinster queen who fucks both Nazis and British lords while running an empire would be a really good archetype. I've been wanting to write something about how Chanel did more to liberate women than the suffragists, but, you know, um, another time. But what we do have are archetypes for womanhood. We have the devoted, loving wife and mother. We have the sad, lonely spinster, and so on. So when we are confronted with a woman genius, it's easier to talk about that form of archetype, the storyline her life plays out rather than the work. Which is why when Vivian Meyer was discovered and rescued by her male savior, which we'll talk about in a minute, she was immediately discussed and dismissed as a nanny. Because that is definitely a woman archetype we understand, the caretaker. Not the genius photographer who did care work so she could continue her practice. Nanny first, photographer second. Pamela Banos has written a really wonderful biography of Vivian Meyer, and it cuts through all that terrible bullshit, the narrative put forth by those who got their hands on her archive and wanted to tell a specific story to sell her shit and make a ton of money off her dead back. It's out soon with the University of Chicago Press. we're speaking with Pamela Banos, the author of the new Vivian Meyer biography coming out from the University of Chicago Press. And Vivian Meyer has been such a huge news story in Chicago since she was, quote unquote, discovered a few years back and presented as this kind of nanny street photographer. And so Pamela Banos's book is the First full biography and investigation of who this mysterious woman was, whose work was only found after her death. Um, so, I guess the first question I want to ask is what is the state of things? Because her. Well, I'm sorry,
1: let me back up because she was found before her death,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is partly um, one of the things that I'm trying to get straight in telling her story in the most. Correct possible way. Um, her, she lost her storage lockers a year and a half before she died, and that important fact, which I cover, you know, in part of the narrative, um, has been sort of masked in that. But to to get to your question, what is the state of affairs today? Um, the current state of the Vivian Meyer estate is that it is in the hands of the Cook County uh, Probate Court where there is a uh, supervised public administrator who administers her estate, which includes her copyright. So her intellectual property is now owned by um, an administrator of the estate.
0: And one of the reasons why it came to this point was because after her storage unit uh, was put up for sale because she stopped paying the bills, is that if that's correct, um, mm-hmm. uh, fell into the hands of a man named John Maloof, who then set about trying to create a a story for Vivian Meyer. I was wondering if you could kind of just walk us through that process.
1: yeah, so so and again, to correct the story because the story that most people know is that uh, she was discovered after her death by a man named John Maloof. and so that's part of what I'm sort of trying to cut through because he was one of many people who acquired her work in 2007 when her storage lockers went up and somebody named Roger Gunderson purchased them and then he auctioned them off in pieces. He actually acquired four tons worth of her possessions and that's how I start the story that she had this massive legacy that she left behind and it was two years later that John Maloof started creating the story that we know today. So a lot of time had passed in between when the work was first auctioned and when the story of the mysterious nanny photographer emerged. And to get to the, you know, to jump really quickly through it, what happened was at that point, um, a book was published, a movie was made by Maloof, another collector named Jeffrey Goldstein, who had acquired 20,000 of her negatives amidst other thousands of materials, including movie footage and prints and slides and so forth. He also published two books and, or books were published from his collection by other, by another outfit and another movie was made. And with all of this production and international exhibitions and so forth, an individual who is not related to any of the players in the story up until that point and who wasn't even in Chicago, the epicenter of where all of this activity was happening, um, went to law school and did his dissertation, effectively, on um, copyright and the case of Vivian Meyer. So he actually wrote a paper about copyright and moral rights and the ethics surrounding the state of um, Meyer's legacy, because he felt that... Um, These men who were selling her work were not authorized to do that because they weren't family and because they had never proven how they had the authority to be publishing and selling and profiting from her work. So he submitted this thesis and then that wasn't the end of his part because then he decided to go to France where he found who he was surmising was the closest heir and he introduced that heir to the Cook County Probate Court, which opened up her estate and instigated their investigation into finding the closest heir. So it wound up in the court system because somebody challenged the authority by which the works at that time were being published and sold and profited by.
0: And I think everybody's or most of the audience for Vivian Meyer came about through this documentary, uh, Finding Vivian Meyer, which was nominated for awards and had a big sort of impact on creating this myth of who Vivian Meyer was. But if you watch the documentary, it seems much more about consolidating the idea of who John Maloof was as sort of controlling the idea that he is the discoverer, and the rescuer almost the kind of white knight figure who saved Vivian Meyer from obscurity. Right. Um
1: so and even the title of the movie is is from the position of him look trying to find her. You know, so um the narrative that he that he perpetuated which is also, you know, leading the questions that you're asking me is that he's the sole, you know, arbiter of her legacy, and it was—it's essentially that reason, or the way that I was discovering is actually not the case—that compelled me to continue my research to tell the story more accurately. So, but what he did do in that movie was basically um, talk about his journey and looking to find her. So it really was about him more than it was about her. And when I've talked about that movie before, what I—the way that I saw the movie is that it perpetuated the mystery of this, you know, mister mysterious nanny photographer, because he spoke with people who primarily were the ones who had hired her to live in their home to be a nanny. So that's how they knew her. And they knew that she always carried a camera, but they'd never seen her pictures. So she was this mystery figure, but then they were the ones that got to represent her. So they became her voice and they're precisely the people who she chose to not share of herself that came to represent who she was by saying, we didn't know who she was. She didn't share. She was very private and she was secretive. And then all of the surmising around why could it be and why didn't she share and then all the sorts of, you know, building up the mystery when you don't have the answers to, you know, an individual who is living among you. So, I mean, it, it made for a compelling movie. I mean, you saw it had very good reviews. It's nominated for an Oscar. And it was a sort of like a travelogue that he put together of his journey.
0: And when you started investigating who Vivian Meyer was underneath this story of her being this kind of naive nanny who maybe didn't necessarily even know the quality of the work that she was producing, what did you start to find there?
1: Um... Well, by the time I got involved in the story, things had actually gone a few steps further because he started with that um, that characterization because he didn't know anything. The first thing he found out was she was an adding. He had some of her materials, and what he was looking at, he started creating a narrative around. And by the time the story reached me, which was in 2012, critics had started weighing in, and people weren't giving her the kind of due that he felt she deserved. And even in his movie, he shows the rejection letter that he got from the Museum of Modern Art because he sent them some of her materials thinking that she belonged there or, you know, to insert her in the history books. So I entered the story to answer the question whether Vivian Meyer's work was derivative of these other photographers whose work she had been compared to. So by that time, there was all of this questioning, but the, the big scenario, for me, the big, issue was that we only got to see the works that he chose for us to see. So it became his editing of her work that established who she was. And I thought that that was very interesting. Once I got access to the other collectors works that started to contradict the version of what kind of photographer she was, because those were the types of photographs that he had acquired and more interestingly when i had you know listening to some of the interviews that he had done early on he didn't know anything about photography when he acquired the work and that he he actually said she was teaching him photography as he went out and and tried to emulate the works that she was making but he was also teaching himself photography by watching a television series that was put out by the BBC called The Genius of Photography. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I watched that series, which is like a five part program, it was kind of amazing how much like her work, those images in that series were, were introducing. And it made me wonder if he found the, the works that looked like the works that were on their program, which then created this sort of mystifying you know, representation, like, why wasn't this woman discovered? And, and beyond that, there were only four women that were represented in that five-part series. And so she clearly looks like she's a missing link, like, why wasn't she part of this history? You know, which was a, you know, a, a watered-down version of the history of photography, but that was his introduction to it. So from his perspective, it looked like he had discovered this woman whose work, you know, looked like these other people's work, which were sort of cherry-picked because she was a photographer of everything. She photographed everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. She photographed her documents. She photographed her bank book. She photographed her application for her passport. She photographed every page of her passport. So the images that I saw that helped me write the biography were because she was basically archiving her life through her photographs. And at a certain point she just was sort of indiscriminately photographing it appeared. So you know, we get to tell the story based on what we have in front of us. And he started telling her story in a way that was very romantic and was very mysterious. And he created mystery because he, almost immediately he started working on his movie. And so he stopped talking about what he was learning. And so he's basically gathering an audience throughout the process of making the movie. which was just kind of brilliant, actually. So, you know, the mystery went on and on and just kept gathering more people because he kept showing more pictures, you know, like dates. And it was it was actually pretty pretty smart.
0: And it's sort of interesting that her collection ended up in a large part in the hands of these men who were not from the art world. They were from Maloof himself was in real estate, right? And there's something right very depressing about how it Ne- isn't necessarily surprising the the uh, coming together of the art world and the real estate market in this in this particular day and age but well he he was
1: also an entrepreneur he had lots of projects going on he was most known for his real estate practice he was featured in chicago magazine as one of the more successful real estate brokers like right around that time but he was also a uh, an eBayer, a super eBayer, where he had thousands of of items that were listing, and that's actually how her work first became public anonymously, without her name attached to it. So each of the each of the men, because they're the 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 three major collectors at the beginning were men, they each had sort of a a separate agenda. Jeffrey Goldstein, um, the second major collector. Was an artist and a collector, so he, he he came at his what he called project from a slightly different perspective. And then the third one, Ron Slattery, was more he's more of a snapshot vernacular photography collector, dealer, seller, you know, flea market person. So the, the way they came in was so, and what they did with the work that they acquired, or didn't do with the work that they acquired, because Ron Slattery still has his entire collection. It'll be ten years by the time my book comes out since the auction. So the the fact that the work had stayed together or has scattered, you know, over the course of time just depended on how each of them saw with what they were doing. But Malouf got pretty pretty busy almost immediately um, with the work that he had acquired. But two years later is when he started amassing the um, the negatives that then became, you know, the books and the movies and so forth, the images that we saw from her. So. My, part of part of my thesis is that I think tens of thousands of her um, of her images through negatives and different forms um, have disappeared or in the hands of people who don't know that they have them. So it's actually it's a, it's a myth that John Maloof owns, you know, that he's not just the sole person who is, you know, the the collector, but that he owns what he says is ninety percent of her legacy because there's no way of knowing that.
0: And what is the benefit of creating the story of Vivian Meyer in the way that these men did in constructing this idea of, um, well, I guess part of it is this idea that she didn't know what she was doing, so she couldn't decide to showcase her work. So it was just hidden away. And that sort of gives them permission then to do what they want with her estate rather than coming to the conclusion that she, this was a decision that she made to put everything away and not show her work to other people.
1: Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to know
0: how to characterize their,
1: um, you know, their strategy and, and the way that things played out. But, I mean, it, it's even further than that, because not only did she not choose to show the work that she did, but she did not even develop one third of her life's work film. So there's there's this next layer of she she only just was interested in actually the the action of taking the picture and not the product or any of the next steps. And that film has been developed and that film has then been printed and those prints have been sold. So there's something then there's you know, there's a more twisted, you know, way of thinking about this because They processed and printed and had been selling and publishing um, until the estate stepped in works that she had, you know, not even developed herself or seen, uh, you know, other than through the viewfinder of her camera. So it introduces even more questions of authorship and ownership and, you know, deciding what's best for the public. You know, I've been a proponent where I've never felt. Truly, that we deserve to see these pictures, the way that people talk about these photographs and and I, I i i'm I'm always conflicted about you know looking at them and sharing them and talking about them because of the you know the position that she took so um it's been interesting to watch how this plays out. I think one of the more interesting aspects of how we ended up where we are and some of the language around the way that um, the men who acquired the work started talking about her right before they got shut down because of the ch- copyright challenge is, and actually what happened after that is that Jeffrey Goldstein actually said that um, he created Vivian Meyer, which I think is a really interesting position because <laughs> she, she apparently, you know, was not in the public realm at all. Clearly she chose not to be, she chose for her pictures, not to be, and he actually filed a counterclaim against the estate even after he'd already said this before um, the copyright was challenged, but he filed a counterclaim um, of what's called unjust enrichment, saying that he had he and his team of master printers and so forth had created the value of her work and that she was nothing before he created, you know, and his team created the value of the work, and therefore they should be profiting from any monies that are made from, you know, whoever owns the copyright. So, I mean, that's a new angle that I would never have thought of to have talked about. It's any a, character characterized her as a nanny who had a hobby of being a photographer.
0: You know, Joanna Russ wrote this book in 1983 called How to Suppress Women's Writing. And mm-hmm. one of the ways um, that she described was to say... Well, it's not art. It maybe it's a maybe it's a book, maybe it's a it's a painting or whatever. But is it really art? And so, the creating this myth that women create in this sort of either as a hobby or it comes bursting out through the subconscious, but doesn't have the kind of intention that only male right. artists have true intention. And it's amazing how many you know this this book was written. Uh, 30 years ago, and yet um, uh-huh. still you see it in the way that sort of men casually talk about women artists all of the time.
1: Yeah. Well, not the least of which to use their first name consistently without like their, her peer. That was the first thing that sort of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Everyone calling her Vivian, Vivian, Vivian as if they had, as if they knew her. And so, yes, there's that. There's also something interesting that happened with this case, which is that in in January, 2011, John Maloof applied to trademark the words Vivian Meyer. So I don't know if that's male, female. I don't even know if it's just, it's like ownership of the name, which isn't the person, but it, it is the person. Um, and then created his official Vivian Meyer website. And this is way before any conversation of copyright came about. So he owned the name. Um, that many years ago, right even before he put up his website. So I don't know, yeah, this, which is something different from not having the agency to know what you're making or having somebody else tell you, you know, what, what your worth is um, in the scheme of the book that you're referring to. But it's, it's, this particular story is kind of a complicated case with this woman who was actually very headstrong, very, confident, very in the world, very sophisticated. If she didn't have like actual school education, she was extremely well-read, haughty even, you know, with the people that she would talk to, but kept to herself. It was, she was, she created herself. She invented herself. She made of herself and she had control over how she wanted to be seen and what she didn't want to have seen. So, you know, so, you know, the way that things have gone with this have been, you know, challenging to try to justify or talk about from from one end or another because she's not here to represent herself.
0: And it does seem, it reminds me of another sort of trope that uh, certain people who are invested in uh, reinforcing male hegemony in the arts use is this idea that genius may reside in women but only through trauma or having it beaten into her in some way. And I remember the moment in uh, Finding Vivian Meyer where he speculates based on absolutely nothing whether or not she had been raped or molested by a man and that would explain why she was never, she never seemed to be in a relationship. And I also remember screaming obscenities uh, in that, in that moment when I saw the, the documentary.
1: Yeah. It was actually one of the children who had, who had said that. And I think he might've done something in relation to the types of articles, making inferences from the types of articles that she had clipped out and put into her binders to like, you know, to to get into her psyche and understand what had happened in her past. So yeah, the tormented soul or looking for, yeah, that's, yeah. I don't have have anything
0: (laughs) to add to that.
1: Yeah.
0: It is a bit like um, these problems, protracted problems, seem to creep up with writers and artists a great deal, though. I'm thinking of Kafka's estate, which is still in contention uh, between Israel and the women who actually have possession of a lot of Kafka's estate in Switzerland and and so on. Um, Switzerland seems to be, Swiss Swiss consortiums seem to be um, a popular theme when you're trying to hide uh, somebody's estate. Um, But why is it so, why does it become so contentious when we're dealing with a dead writer or a dead artist work? What do we owe to the dead art or artist or writer? Particularly someone like Kafka who asked that his work be burned or somebody like Vivian Meyer who had the ability to make the decision to deal with her work and chose not to. What do we owe mm-hmm. to somebody like these people?
1: Well, I guess that's where I stepped in because <laughs> I decided to represent her in the most uh, accurate way possible, I felt like her legacy was owed some clarity and some, you know, insight into her work as a photographer, which is how I approached my, this book, was to follow in her footsteps through her photographs and to represent her as she's making these pictures, which is how I think she saw herself in the world because she lived with these families by default because she was a caregiver and a nanny and so forth. So, I mean, to to answer the question, I think the best we can do is to try to be true to them. And that's, I mean, that's how I see what I'm trying to do and to to sort of step back and see what exactly happened, not only with, with her as a phenomenon, which is the over, you know, there's like, the way that I'm telling the story is two stories. It's, it's the story of her it's her family leading up to her, you know, birth and her childhood. And then she emerges as a photographer. And then she just kind of loses her agency when her work gets, starts getting handled by people who she probably would not have shared with and, or uh, who knows how she would have thought about what was going on. Um, until now it's in the courts and she's so far out of the picture that I felt like, I mean, it's, in, you know, it's taken me five years to get to this point, but I just felt like giving this woman her agency back seemed really important. Um,
0: and this is the second time you've uh, used the phrasing of she would probably wouldn't have shared her work with people like this. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Well, I don't think she would have shared her work with anybody because she didn't.
0: <laughs> she didn't share her work with anybody. So when I see people
1: like this or people like that, I just think that she wouldn't have shared her work with anybody. I mean, this uh, people who thought they were her friends were hurt when they found out about the depth and the breadth of her photographic legacy because they thought they were her friends. So she just didn't share her work with anybody of who has stepped forward to say that they had any real know-how. Actually, except for the people who John Maloof did not interview or include in his movie, which were the people who did know her as a photographer. And, you know, there were two documentary movies made about her. And the the more well-known one is the Maloof movie because it was made by Hollywood and it's actually still, I think, playing on Netflix. So that still is perpetuating, you know, that version of her. But there was another movie that was made by a woman named Jill Nichols, who's an expert documentary photographer for the BBC, and she made a movie, uh, you know, it's a 70-minute feature documentary on her that was only available in the UK on television. So it's not widely known, but it's a more balanced story because she included people who knew her as a photographer, which is what I think is more important because she did share with those people and she shared her pictures with those people. And they knew about her work as a photographer and, you know, they didn't have any control over her in the way that she wasn't employed by them or living in their home or, you know, locked in a room in their home and so forth. So, you know, it's a, it makes me think about how we show different sides of ourselves to different people, depending on you know, what we feel safe with or who we trust with our information and so forth. And it's a funny, I I see her as being very private within her employer's home and very public when she's in the world. I mean, she was very recognizable. Anyone who had ever seen her by her description knew that they had seen her. So, I mean, she was very conspicuous in her practice. She carried two and three cameras at the same time sometimes. So what I was trying to do is reconstruct her practice. And by looking at several different archives of work, I was finding pictures from one camera made in one collection that matched a different camera, like a raleigh Fletch picture in Jamalouf's collection was repeated in another um, person's collection in slide form. And I was like, she's using two cameras shooting the same event. So she, she was like busy looking like a professional photographer, very visible, very conspicuous. She was wearing a beret and a trench coat. She looked like a European journalist. And that's how I see her. So when I see these nanny depictions, you know, the people who said, I don't know, she was a mystery to me, you know, and I didn't know she was taking all these pictures, you know, just speaks to, you know, the side of us that we choose to not share, I guess.
0: And do you think that it also speaks to our discomfort with with the female genius that we would prefer it's, it's a larger selling point? to create this idea of the hobbyist or the accidental photographer, rather than to say that she had a specific intention.
1: Or Mary Poppins with a camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's easy. And it's more romantic, you know, because I guess there aren't other models that you can compare her to. You know, so like there's a nanny and there's a photographer. When you put nanny and photographer together, it, it just gets you know, charming, and you think of children, and, you know, and then and then you sort of go down another road. And, and it's never been discouraged to think of her like that. And I think, you know, early on, this notion of not being able to separate her as a nanny from her as a photographer, or her as a nanny from the photographs, even better, because when you see the photographs, the last thing you think about is a nanny taking those pictures, which, you know, it becomes mystifying. Like, how could a nanny have taken these pictures, which I think is a quote from the movie. And a nanny didn't take those pictures. A photographer took those pictures, you know. So there's like this conjuring of what a nanny is. And then separated from the images that you're looking at, you know, the dissonance is confounding and just like, and then maybe that's where genius comes in, because how could this person also be that person? You know, and the other thing about the movie, actually, is that the people who the people that were being interviewed in his movie the Luce movie are people that knew her at different times than the pictures that he was showing. And I've always thought about, you know, that's we're looking at photographs of a 24 year old in New York or 26 year old. She left. She arrived in Chicago when she was 30. And the people who are representing her knew her when she was 60 and 70 and 80 years old. And so they're they're confounded by these, these photographs of New York from the 50s. Well, they were made by, you know, a much younger woman who had the world in front of her at that time. And, and all the different people who we become throughout our life or the different people who get to represent her, knew her at a different decade in her life. You know, they're like, wow, I knew her like, this. you know, so the stories just get more romantic, which make the pictures more interesting, too, because, you know, this the confounding dissonance between them, I just think is. You know, it adds the mystery sells. It's just like, you know, the people who have been buying her photographs are, many of them are first-time photograph buyers. And, you know, I talk about there's, you're buying a Vivian Meyer and a Vivian Meyer. Her self-portraits are among the most popular pictures that sell because it's her that you're buying. So it's, um, she's a unique case, I think.
0: And I know that we're sort of, for the most part, seeing her work that she didn't, process. So there were decisions in the editing and, and the formatting that she didn't have an opportunity to make in the presentation of these pictures. But what is it that you see when you look at a Vivian Meyer photograph?
1: You know, looking at a Vivian Meyer photograph and thousands of Vivian Meyer photographs is, is kind of almost the same thing for me at this point, because I've seen so many of them and I was looking at them differently than the pictures, like the pictures that I used to tell her story were different than the pictures that were chosen to sell. You know, there's like different things that we were looking at. So when I'm looking at her whole entire body of work, I'm, and I'm tracking her movements and her techniques and what she's doing and what's, what she's drawn to. And then I can see which I can just see which picture would be chosen to be put in a book because it looks like the quintessential street photograph. Um, but, but I don't know. There's just something about the way that she chronicled everything is what I think is the, is my lasting um, Sort of overwhelming impression of, of the work that she did. It was a constant recording of everything and it got more and more um, pronounced with two and three cameras and, and shooting motion picture and just a constant chronicling, you know, to go back to her earliest work that she was introduced to us with the New York stuff. Um, we're looking at these big square photographs, which look very fresh to us because it looked like, you know, early Instagram and, and the kind of way that, you know, the square looks very fresh, but she never printed her picture square. She cropped in really tight to her subject. She was interested in the people in the photographs. And so, you know, when you see the big square and we talk about composition and and these weird juxtapositions that are happening in the background, she wasn't interested in that necessarily. So that reading of the pictures and then reading of her gets really tricky.
0: And we should mention that you are also a photographer. And I remember the first, so the first work of yours that I came across was part of your light series where you're taking these sort of found photographs, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and sort of messing with the light and to introduce these kind of either mystical or paranormal even elements into the work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your own experience as a photographer?
1: My, my own
0: experience as a photographer.
1: Yes. So, yeah, so at this point I so I've been teaching photography in the darkroom for 23 years and I still teach photography in the darkroom. Um my own practice has veered off in different directions as, you know, digital came about and as my interests sort of went in different directions. So I have this kind of two-strand art practice right now where I do these intensive research projects that are mostly based site-based which is how this project became what it did about Vivian Meyer. And then the other strand is I have this photo-based practice, which um, is is also in variations, but for the most part, um, I start with found images, found snapshots that in the series, The Light that you just referred to, I introduce an element into the photograph that activates the pictures in a way that gives, new meaning to the way that the people were already organized within the photograph. So I'm, I'm introducing through Photoshop, um, this orb of light or this would be called like will of the wisps, that, that sort of activate the pictures in a way that recontextualizes them from the original found snapshot where there wasn't anything necessarily pointed about the picture. There for many, many of them, it's, of mystifying why the image was made in the first place. So when I add this element, it sort of gives the people whose backs are maybe to the camera something to look at. So I was basically changing the meanings of photographs by introducing this this element of light into them.
0: And the found element of um, where would you look for these snapshots in order to um, change them?
1: Oh, I've been collecting snapshots for twenty-some years. I've been since the beginning of eBay, which is a big, which is a big part of the Vivian Meyer story, actually, and also how I was able to access these photographs. So, I've been collecting snapshots and vernacular photography just for, not just for source material, but because I like these anonymous images. And um, Ron Flattery, who's one of the three major collectors, um, contacted me after my initial foray into. The Vivian Meyer story. And turns out he knows my brother, who's also a dealer in vernacular photography, who lives on the West Coast. And as a result of that, it's like who you know. So so this this the snapshot aesthetic and this vernacular, you know, photography collection um is just something that I've had and it's just it has become my source material now. So I have like drawers and drawers of, of snapshots that that I look at as uh, as raw material. I have another series where I take similar snapshots and I alter the focus so that you know I'm changing where your point of um, where the point is of of the photographs. So I start with a picture that's entirely in focus and then I throw most of it out of focus to bring something in the foreground. It sort of plays with the way we with the way optics operate, so it sort of becomes confusing in a way or sort of pointing something out and bringing it forward because of the way that, that the focus is working. But I've also done other series where I collaborate with um, the, the one series of, with the, the black and white images of that look like celestial bodies and things. I did, a, I did a collaboration with an astronomer. I've done year-long projects that end up in some form of an exhibition or a, or a, um, a web-based project. I've been doing these year-long projects, which is why this Vivian Meyer story, it's been five years of my life, while I have these ongoing other projects that are going on, um, research projects, or, you know, the the series that you're talking about, The Light and this other one, which is called Some Untitled Pictures, is ongoing. So I'm, like, always looking at material and finding ways of responding to it.
0: Okay, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: You're you're welcome. Forever. (laughs) This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com.